Good morning, Hillcrest. How are y'all today? So glad to be able to worship with you. So thankful for those of us who are gathered today in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And those who are joining us online, so thankful that you're tuning in. Uh, we just love the Lord at Hillcrest. We love his word. We love his people. And, and I'm just thankful to be able to stand before you with an open Bible. It's always a true privilege. Uh, y'all believe that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for us? Man, some of us not quite there yet. All right. Do y'all believe that the scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for us? Much better. Very good. All right. We're going to turn to Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to continue in our study of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We love it. We've been learning so much from God's word, wisdom literature on how to live wisely. And I will continue in that theme today. Uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 together. It'll be on the screens. But also, if you want a hard copy, there should be one right in front of you on page 521 if you'd like to follow along. As is my typical custom, what I'd like to do is have everyone stand with me. I'll read our text. We'll say a word of prayer. And then we'll see what God's word says. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 12. This is the perfect word of our perfect God. Let's give our attention to it. A good name is better than precious ointment in <clears throat> the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the poor, the proud in spirit, excuse me. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The word of God. Let's pray. Father, this is the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by your truth. Shape us into the image of Christ. May the preacher decrease that you increase. For the glory of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What do you do most often each day? If we could videotape a typical day in your life, what would we find you doing more than anything else? Some of you may say, well, that's easy. I talk a lot. I say a lot of words. Uh, others may say, I'm not fond of talking. I'm more of a texter. I text a lot. Or I go on social media 
a lot. The list could go on and on. <clears throat> but according to some reliable sources, you know what you do more often than you do anything else each day? Choose. You make decisions. In fact, studies show that the average person makes 35,000 choices each day. Assuming that most people spend around seven hours a day sleeping, if you sleep less, you make even more choices than that, that makes about roughly 2,000 decisions per hour. One decision every two seconds. You're deciding to listen to the preacher right now. They count everything. When you woke up in the morning, you decided to brush your teeth, I hope. There are all kinds of decisions. The decision to shuffle in your pew or to lift your hands in worship or to ignore the notification that you just received. The decision to eat Hormel center cut pork bacon for breakfast instead of the healthier turkey bacon that my wife wants me to eat. 35,000 choices a day, and some admittedly are more insignificant than others. Others are more important. Will I take this job or that one? Will I buy this house or that one? Will I invest in this stock or that one? And we know this. Some choices are just better than others. Those of us that choose best root for the University of Florida. Amen. Some choices are life-changing. Some choices will shape the very course of history. And the most important choice any of us can make is the choice to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? A man or woman is known by his or her choices. And in a very real sense, we are what we choose. Ultimately, the story of our lives rises and falls upon the choices that we make. And so as followers of Jesus, as those of us who are becoming like Christ, we ought to learn to choose wisely so that we'll be prepared to die well. That's the title of this message today. And it's from Ecclesiastes 7, which we have read together. And what I'd like to do is contextualize a little bit. Where are we by the time we get here? Maybe you're listening for the first time today. And what we have seen in the first six chapters or so is Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doing everything in his power to convince us that everything in life, even the good things in life, are bad things apart from God. They're meaningless. They're pointless. They're a chasing after the wind, he will say. And now he's shifted from that to our text today to tell us what is good. He moves from telling us what is futile and vain and fleeting to tell us what is good and what is best. At least seven times in this one text, he uses this Hebrew adjective, tov, better than. Did you notice it when we were reading the text? One way to determine the central idea of a passage is to look for repeated words, phrases, ideas. And in 12 verses, seven times, he says, this is better than that. This is better than that. This is better than that. And so what Solomon is saying is he's sharing his wisdom with us so that we would be 
able to choose wisely and be prepared to die well. And if I were to draw from that text, a main point for today's message, this is what I would say. Some things are better than others. The wise choose what's best. And we'll see from this passage three examples of wise living. I'll preface it with the phrase, we live wisely when, and then give some fill in the blanks there for us, so that by the time we leave, we'll have a better knowledge of how to honor God with our choices. Let's dig in, first and foremost. We live wisely when we remind ourselves that life is fleeting. We live wisely when we remind ourselves that life is fleeting. Look at verses one and two of our text. The Bible says a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Notice with me the counterintuitive nature of these statements. They go contrary to what we might think or feel, right? I mean, think about it. How on earth is the day of death better than the day of birth? In what way could it possibly be true that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting? Verse two, I love the house of feasting. Don't y'all? The fact that the Bible says this should tell us something about the way we think and the way God thinks. For instance, God will say to us in Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as high as the heavens, as the heavens are higher than the earth, he says. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's the point? Our thinking doesn't always line up with God's way of thinking, does it? And here's the point. God's way is better. His way of thinking is right. When we see that our thinking and God's thinking don't match, we're the ones that need to repent and change. Would you agree? God says to us, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. How high is that? Infinitely higher. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And then that same God turns around and tells us, verse three of our text, sorrow is better than laughter. And here's the question I have for you. Do you believe him when he says this? Faith in Jesus leads us to trust his logic, his values, his decision-making. We believe him when he says, for instance, in Luke 9, 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. We believe what he says about our lives and the primary thing he says about life, human life, over and over and over again is that it is fleeting. It is misty. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. When compared to the beach of eternity with trillions and trillions of grains of sand, your life and mine is equivalent to one tiny grain. It's a blip in comparison with eternity. 
And so the wise thing to do is to realize just how fleeting life is. This is why King David said in Psalm 39, verse 4, a prayer to God, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Unless the Lord returns first, there is a 100% chance we're going to die. I don't want to bring you down this morning, but it's the truth. It's inevitable. We're going to have to meet our maker one day. And the wise thing to do is to be prepared for that. How do we do that? I'm saying you remind yourself that life is fleeting. Look at verse 2. The preacher says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. He could have just said, The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. But did you notice the verb, to go? One way we remind ourselves that life is fleeting, quickly dissipating, here, today, gone, tomorrow, is to go to a funeral, attend a memorial. Don't skip out on those because the deceased has something to say to you. Listen to a sermon from the deceased. Now, as I'm saying that, you're probably like, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to hear a sermon from a dead person. If this text is true, and it absolutely is, there is great wisdom in listening to a silent sermon from the dead. And they always say the same thing. As you are now, I once was. And As I am now, you one day will be. There's wisdom in being reminded of that. And the wise thing to do is remember that we will have to leave here one day. And I'm telling you, Hillcrest, the world will tell you the exact opposite of that, won't it? The world will say to you, live it up. Do whatever you want. Give little thought to the fact that you may die. Live and act as though you have full control over every aspect of your life. And again, we have a choice. We have the world's wisdom, and we have true wisdom from God's word. We can let the world shape us, or we can let the word shape us. Look at James chapter 4 who wrote New Testament. He's the half-brother of Jesus. If you read his letter, it reads a lot like Old Testament wisdom literature. Here's what he says. James 4, verse 13 and following. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. If you're listening to me now, then you're alive. And no matter who you are, God describes your life this way. We just read it. You are a mist. You appear for a little time, then you vanish. And one way to remind ourselves of that is to go to a funeral. But another way, according to James in this text, James chapter 4, is to make every plan you make with a little 
asterisk next to it that says, if the Lord wills. And I'll start a business if the Lord wills. I'll go on vacation if the Lord wills. Because if the Lord desires something else for my life, his will be done. Amen? This is how we live wisely. We remind ourselves that life is fleeting. But next we see we live wisely when we receive correction from other disciples. We live wisely when we receive correction from other disciples. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now, just like we had in verse 2, the verb to go, did you notice the verb in verse 5? He could have just said, rebuke is better than songs. But he says it's better to hear. That verb, shema, Hebrew, what it does not mean and what it does mean, I'll explain to you. What it doesn't mean is to let information go in one ear and out the other. You heard it. You know the difference. It's kind of like when you're talking to your kids and it's like you tell them something. Did you, did you hear me? This is a hear that leads to obedience. You're hearing in order to heed what you're hearing. You're hearing in order to be influenced and shaped by it. And that's what he means when he says to hear the rebuke of the wise. It is to be influenced by it. And so the question to you this morning is if you want to live wisely, do you? Then you ought to allow yourself to be influenced by the correction of the wise. You ever know anybody who has an allergy to being corrected? Uh, here's a more convicting question. Have you ever been somebody who has an allergy to being corrected? I remember in my childhood, I struggled with this very thing. <clears throat> I have to be careful. People who live with me are always here. My mother was in the first service, <clears throat> and my wife was in the second service. I can't get away with anything. I say in my childhood, I'd like to think that I've grown in this area, uh, praise the Lord, but we still have a ways to go. But in, I was pretty bad about this in my middle and high school years. And why wouldn't I be? After all, I was a child prodigy. I knew, many, I knew more than any other adult I'd ever met, including my parents. I could have written a book entitled, No Need for Correction, right here at this guy. And after my father retired from the army, both of my parents were public school teachers and had very high expectations for me in school. And if I ever got a low grade on a test, I'd be rebuked, to use the word from the text. I'd be corrected to do the following. Sit in the front of the classroom, they'd say. Take good notes. Ask good questions during the lesson, they'd say. Review your notes every day. Don't just cram the night before the test, they'd say. And to that correction, I thought, but would never say out loud, I don't need your correction. I don't need your advice. After all, I'm a child prodigy, for goodness sake. And yet the scripture is so clear, is it not? Proverbs 13, verse 1, what does it say? A wise son hears his father's instruction. As I look at my son in the audience. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. 
The text says it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. I thought I was so clever. I thought I was so wise. I was only demonstrating how foolish I really was. And most of us grow out of that immaturity as we grow older. We figure out how to not look so proud, get things done. But what about our spiritual growth? I want you to evaluate yourself as you're listening today. Are you a Christian who doesn't receive correction from others? Do you resist when other believers try to correct you? When's the last time someone critiqued you regarding your becoming like Christ? And were you receptive to it? Did you deflect or become defensive? I'm I'm doing a little bit of meddling right now. But as I'm asking these questions, you might be thinking, I can't think of a time that a brother or sister in Christ has corrected me. One more question, you ready? Could it be that no one dares to correct you because they know they're gonna suffer if they try to do that? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter nine, verse seven, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself, what? Abuse. And he who reproves, another word for correcting, reproves, rebukes a wicked man, incurs injury. If people get attacked by you because they try to correct you, then you are a scoffer. If people are insulted by you when they reprove you, then you're a foolish person. But I want you to be honest with yourself. Are you the spiritual equivalent to a moody preteen? Are you walking around Hillcrest or your job, or your home, with a sign that says no need for correction. If that's you, can I just say, I'm not here to condemn you today. God knows I'm not because this word convicted me long before you're hearing it. In fact, I wanna give you some good news. God specializes in helping people who know it all realize they don't know it all. The Lord Jesus didn't die for us when we were all good and put together, amen? He died for us when we were foolish, sinful, scoffers. And he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us, not because we are wise, but to make us so. Praise the Lord, he doesn't wait till we have it all together before he saves us. And praise the Lord, he doesn't save us and leave us idiots at the altar. He he guides us on a path of wisdom so that we can actually grow in our becoming like Christ. This is why I love Philippians 1 verse 6. It was our memory verse for Vacation Bible School. Here's what the Bible says. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Anybody believe that? If you're a disciple of Jesus... He's working on you right now. And if you will listen, he will certainly be correcting you all along the way. But how does he do this practically? Do you hear a cloud from heaven telling you, don't do that, this is better than that? No, you have the word of God for sure, but the main vehicle is the local church. 
This is a form of correction that we're doing right now. But even more than that, God matures his children through church members correcting one another. This is the point of Galatians chapter 6. Paul writing to the churches of Galatia. Here's what he says. Brothers, this is family language. If any of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, think about this with me. We're at church today. We want to obey God's word. We want to apply this passage to our lives. We just saw Galatians chapter 6. Where is the context for that? That someone would know of your transgression and be able to restore you with gentleness. Where is the context where someone would bear your burdens? Is it necessarily here in this room? Probably not. I don't think most of us are bearing one another's burdens as we walk into this room today. Is it when you're serving disaster relief, we celebrate what disaster relief does as you're swinging your hammer? Are you, are you bearing one another's burdens in that way, correcting people? Probably not. Maybe not even in a connect group or a growth group, but do you know there is a place at Hillcrest, a context in which you can receive correction and someone will look you right in the eye and ask you some really pointed questions, and you gotta answer them. That's a D group. Discipleship. We've been creating a culture of disciples making disciples for a long time. But a a discipling group is a gender-specific group where three to five people get together. They get into God's word for Bible engagement, for prayer, and for, here's the word, accountability now I never do this but I'm going to do it today I want you to participate in the sermon are y'all ready look to your neighbor and say to them you need accountability you need it you need it there is no growth without it there's no becoming like Christ without accountability And this is why we have D groups. Guys will meet with two to four other guys. They get real. Here in this context, sometimes, you know, you know know how it is. People ask you how you're doing. Oh, man, it's all great. It's good. Amen, brother. But in a D group, that's where you bear one another's burdens. That's where you give and receive correction. You become more like Christ. It's like going to the gym. I recently started lifting weights again. And I will tell you, I do way, way, way more than I would do if I had no accountability. If I had no workout partners on Monday morning. But I have Rich, my neighbor who lives three houses down, who's obsessed with having six-pack abs. I have dad bod. It might might be the the pork bacon, I don't know, but... um, I have Rich, and I have David, my brother, who's here today, who serves in the U.S. Army, so you know he pushes me really hard. The point is I have brothers around me who examine how much weight I'm lifting, and they watch my form, and they offer instructions on how to build muscle, and they challenge and correct me. If that's true with the physical, don't you think the spiritual is that much more important? 
In the same way, if you want to grow in becoming like Christ, if you want to live wisely, you need to choose to receive correction from somebody. The Bible says it is better, this is verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And the primary context for giving and receiving that kind of correction at Hillcrest is in a D group. So if you have questions about that, you're like, man, you know what? I need that. I'll be right here at the end of the service today. I'd love to help you take your next step with that. We live wisely when we receive correction from other disciples. We live wisely when we remind ourselves that life is fleeting. And third and finally, we live wisely when we value the long view. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. The preacher says, it is better, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. The way to wise living is choosing to value the long view. The wise value patience over pride. The wise wait for it in the Proud, demand it right now. The wise choose a long fuse. What do I mean by that? It takes a lot to make the wise angry. You know, I had to preach in Northwest Hall on Wednesday night. I don't know how many of y'all were watching or listening to that. Guess what I was preaching on? The fruit of the Spirit is patience. And I come here on Sunday morning, better is the patient in spirit. Than the proud in spirit. And I, I wonder if the Lord is trying to communicate something to me. The fruit of the spirit is patience, beloved. Can I just cut it straight with you? Can I be honest? We're often, myself included, very impatient people, aren't we? We tend to tell people, um, you know what I'm about to say, we give them spiritual advice. In your prayer life, the one thing you never want to pray for is patience. Can I just tell you, that's not biblical advice. (laughs) No, patience is the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know why we say that. We say that because if you pray for patience, it's kind of like asking God to give you long lines at Publix and difficult people at your job. And you don't want to pray for patience because then you'll get those things and you don't want those things. But can I just tell you a secret? God is going to give you long lines at Publix and difficult people at your job, whether or not you pray for patience. He knows what we need. And we need to be patient. And so it is very biblical to pray for patience because when we're patient, we're more like Jesus. One of the key things the Bible says about God is that he is slow to anger. And so we need to be. This is why our text says, don't be quick. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry because anger lodges. It resides. It makes its home in the heart of fools. Dear Lord, make us a patient people. John Piper, who I've benefited from more than anybody with respect to this idea of patience, he defines it this way. He says, patience is the capacity to wait and to endure without murmuring and disillusionment. To wait in the unplanned place and to endure 
the unplanned pace. Patience is accepting the long path that God gives you when you much prefer your own shortcut. And I said a lot about it on Wednesday night. If you'd like to hear the whole message, you can look at it there. But here's a quote that I want to leave you with from Piper. He says, if we believe that our holdup at the long red light was God's keeping us back from an accident that was about to happen, we'd be patient and happy. And if we believe that our broken leg was God's way of revealing early cancer in the x-ray so that we could survive, we would not murmur at the inconvenience. If we believe that the middle of the night phone call was God's way of waking us to smoke in the basement, we would not grumble at the loss of sleep. What's his point? The key to patience, which is what we all need, is faith in the future grace of God's glorious might to transform all of our interruptions into rewards. Living wisely means that we value the long view. We choose the long fuse. In fact, if you could say it with me, it'd make me so happy today. Choose the long fuse. Choose the long fuse. What does that mean in everyday living? It means you're slow to anger. It should take you more than five seconds to go off on somebody. We should be merciful and patient with others because God is that way with us, isn't he? If you want God to be patient with you, say amen. We want God to be patient with us. We want others to be patient with us. And beloved, one way we do unto others is we would have them do unto us is extend that same patience and mercy that God has extended to us. Be slow to anger. Choosing long fuse not is just being slow to anger. It's bearing with the faults of others. Don't bite somebody's head off just because they made a mistake. <laughs> Correct them when necessary. We talked about correction. But extend mercy to others when they fall short. This is wise living. And this is something that I was confronted with recently about what really is happening when we are impatient. And you've seen this happen, for instance, at the restaurant. The, the waitress doesn't get it right when she brings the meal out. Perhaps you've seen an example of somebody just losing their cool over the chicken noodle soup. We think we're displaying strength in those moments, but you know what we're really doing? We're displaying weakness. It doesn't take anything to fly off the handle. No, patience is a demonstration of strength. This is what the Bible says in Proverbs 16, verse 32. The Bible says, whoever is slow to anger is better than who? The mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And so, Lord, help us to be more patient, which is a fruit of the spirit. By God's grace, we want to remind ourselves that life is fleeting. We want to receive correction from other disciples. And Lord, help us to choose the long view, to choose patience over pride. Because when we live like that, we're prepared to die well. There's nothing wiser than to seek eternal life found through faith in Christ. And verse 12 is a great conclusion. The last phrase of our text today says, wisdom preserves, 
the life of him who has it. And as I close this sermon today, I'm reminded of the way the Lord Jesus Christ closed perhaps his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And there the Lord had been teaching his disciples to choose this over that. For instance, he says, you've heard that it was said that thing over there, but I'll tell you this. He tells them that they are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. They shouldn't be hidden. We're the difference makers. And he goes through his whole sermon and he concludes by contrasting one way of living versus another. He says in Matthew 7, 24, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Whenever we hear the word of God, we have a choice to make. Will we build our lives upon it or will we go our own way? The difference between the foolish builder and the wise builder in this text was not that one heard the word and the other didn't. They both heard it. One chose to build their life upon it in obedience. And there was great blessing that came. And so as we draw to a close today, I want you to think about how is Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 12 going to shape your life this week? How will you build your life upon God's word? I pray that the Lord will lead you Remind yourself just how fleeting life is. That you'll receive correction from people who are wise and godly. And that you'll choose a long fuse. Be patient rather than proud. Because that is wise living. And that glorifies God. This is his word that all who agree say amen.